welcome to Mercy View. Uh, my name is Brad, one of the pastors here. Happy New Year's. Hey, it's January the 1st tonight. You are here on New Year's Day. Um, you're to be commended for that. Thank you for being here tonight. And if you're visiting with us, just want to uh, echo Trey's welcome to you. We're honored that you're here. Pray you've been blessed and encouraged by your time with us so far. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. Um, as Trey referenced, after the service, we'll have a, our, our monthly potluck in the um, fellowship hall. I'd love to see you there as well. We'll have plenty of food. Now, today, it is a unique thing that we gather together on, on a Sunday that is also uh, January the 1st. But here we are, and, and, and if you're like most... Maybe yesterday or maybe this morning, you began to think about your New Year's resolutions. And uh, I did too. I'm trying to figure out how to do better um, for the new year in 2023. And so um, all of us are trying to think about that. We're reflecting on the last year. We're trying to think about the year to come and uh, how we can improve and, and get better. Um, how are you doing on your commitments? Some of you have already broken some of your New Year's resolutions that you made yesterday, right? We, we don't do a great job of keeping the resolutions that we make every New Year, do we? There's something about that, right? Setting goals, making commitments, those are like really good things, but we tend to lack the discipline and the will to be like steadfast and consistent in that over, over the course of a period of time. Here's what um, I think happens many times. We get the cart before the horse. Here's what I mean. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this. You can Google this when you get back home, but um, the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, well-known uh, pastor, theologian, writer, Puritan pastor. And uh, he had 70 resolutions that he really wrote over the course of his lifetime. If you put them all together, there were 70 of them. And you might think, Brad, like, I can barely keep two. How, how could someone like Jonathan Edwards even write out 70 resolutions, let alone keep uh, 70 resolutions? Um, just so you know, he probably didn't write. Like, he's a sinner just like you and me. But here's what's unique about the, the resolutions of, of Jonathan Edwards. They aren't really about him. Right? What are our resolutions typically about? I starts with the word I and has some sentence about losing weight or exercising more or sharing our faith more, whatever it may be. The, the, the very like center of all the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, it's, it's centered on the glory of God. In fact, I'm going to read a couple of them just to give you a, an idea of what I mean. Here's actually resolution number one. When you Google it, this will be the first one that comes up. This is Jonathan Edwards. Resolved that I will do all I think or say to the glory of God and not to take into consideration my own comfort, my own profit, or pleasure. Here's uh, resolution number 27 from Jonathan Edwards. Resolved to never forget I am not my own but God's and never to live for myself but God. Maybe if you and I were more focused, if I was more focused on glorifying God in my commitments, maybe I would be more steadfast in them. Maybe you would too. 
So as you think about the new year, here we are on, on Sunday, January 1st, 2023. What are your resolutions for this upcoming year? Like what is the one thing that you should be pursuing above all else this year? Paul actually has something to say about that to us tonight in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. So since the fall of 2021, we have been in and out of the book of Romans. We have been um, in and out of Romans chapters like 1 through 11. We've preached about 32 sermons in, in, in total. And we've been going passage by passage through this book to uh, get a sense of like what is Paul's um, theological treatise. This is like his dissertation on who God is. And in chapters 1 through 11, what Paul does is he gives us a very, very, very high view of God. He also gives us a very realistic picture of ourselves. But the, the glory of, of, of Romans 1 through 11 is that as he talks about this high view of God and a realistic picture of ourselves, he shows us how God closes the gap, as you heard Trey talk about earlier, between his holiness and our sinfulness by sending Jesus to die for us on our behalf and to exchange our sin for his righteousness. That was really the theme of, of chapters 1 through 11. It was the righteousness of God. And as we turn the corner tonight, we are really moving into uh, a different kind of approach that Paul is going to take uh, in this book. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is really this sort of deep doctrine and theology about the things we just talked about. And as we turn the corner here in, in chapter 12, what Paul is going to begin to do is to lay out for us the ways in which the grace of God is meant to inform us on the ground, like practically in the Christian life. And as we look to conclude this book of Romans by the end of this year, our prayer is that you will see how the gospel is not just a doctrine that strengthens you, it is for sure that, that's what we saw in chapters 1 through 11. But it is also a power that fuels your devotion to God. And as we do that tonight, as we see him make that turn this evening, I really just want to invite you to see one big thing, and it's this. Giving God supreme worth is the whole of the Christian life. Let me just say that again. Giving God supreme worth is the whole of your Christian life. So I actually want to invite you to look back at Romans chapter 11, the very end of Romans chapter 11. That's where we're going to begin before we jump into the passage you heard Jill read. And I just want you to look there briefly, and I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Paul is doing. Paul ends what is considered the first half of the book of Romans with something called a doxology. And the reason I know that it's a doxology, which is another word for a, uh, stanzas of, of worship to God, is that in my Bible, it, it looks different. It's formatted a, a little differently, right? It looks like a song might look or a poem might look. And, and you'll notice in this doxology, Paul is breaking into worship. He's breaking into praise. After 
talking about the, the beauty of God's gospel in the first part of Romans. He is so overwhelmed with God's wisdom. He's so overwhelmed with God's ways that it drives him to his knees in worship. And he can't help but just exclaim to God, God, the salvation that that I've experienced, the salvation that you give to, to others, it only takes place because of your grace. And the ultimate goal and the purpose of your divine plan, God, is now for us through our lives to proclaim the majestic name, your name, over all the earth. Now, Paul could have ended Romans right there. The beginning, uh, at the end of chapter 11, all that he's taken uh, into account in these first 11 chapters is lofty, it's majestic, it's grand, it's magnificent. And we could stop there and that would be fine. But Paul does something very interesting. He keeps writing. For another five chapters, he keeps writing. Why? Well, because... Paul knows that this work of God is not meant just to be knowledge to be consumed, right? That would be the temptation that we would walk away from chapters 1 through 11 and go, man, I know some really great things about God. I know some things about myself. I know some things about the gospel. But Paul knows that it is not enough to just know things, but rather to take those things and to work themselves out into our lives practically, right? To work out our salvation, as he says in another place in the New Testament, with fear and trembling. In other words, the grace of God transforms us spiritually. But it also is meant to motivate us to live in a certain way. Christianity is not just a philosophical idea. It's not just a belief system. It is no less than those things, but it is a truth to be lived out. And that brings us to Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Look with me, if you would, beginning at verse 1 again. Paul begins in the ESV by saying, I appeal. Now, I think in the NIV and some other translations, there's actually the word therefore at the very beginning of Romans 12. And you guys know this bit, right? If there is a therefore, you've got to ask, what is the therefore? Did anybody say that? Nobody knows that? Okay, yeah, if you see a therefore, you've got to ask, okay, why is the therefore? This is a, a, a turning point here in, in this book, and, and Paul is, is, is turning the corner to show us some of the things we just, we just talked about. Now, it's interesting he uses this word appeal. Now, an appeal, if I appeal to you, I am not commanding you to do something, right? I'm not directing you to do something. I'm... I'm coming to you in love and asking you to strongly consider doing something. It's stopping short of a a command. It's stopping short of a directive. But Paul is coming with a softer word here. But it is more than a recommendation. It is, is a strong encouragement that is an expression of love. And notice that he calls... The, the Roman church, brothers. Now, this is one of those places in the New Testament when you see the word brothers, you can um, interpret it as brothers and sisters. He's talking to the church, the entire church, both men and women. And when he does this, he is not placing himself above his friends in the Roman church when he calls them brothers and sisters, but rather he is placing them under the authority of, of God and saying, I'm just like you, 
we're together in this, the things that I'm getting ready to call you to and, and encourage you towards are the same things that, that, that God is calling me to. I'm no, no different. I'm not special because I, I'm an apostle. Um, I have to do the same thing. I, I want to do the same things. And so he is making an appeal to his friends in the Roman church based on the implication of the theological realities of chapters 1 through 11 in Romans. What were the previous 11 chapters about? Well, you can actually sum it up in another way by a phrase that's there in verse 1. The, the, the previous 11 chapters of Romans could be summed up this way. The mercies of God. Paul is basing his appeal in the kindness, in the grace, and the mercy of God from the previous chapters. In fact, Paul is saying that this starting point is how you and I are to live. We have to ground our lives in the mercies of God. We are to press everything through the grace of God that we do in life. A big view of a merciful God is the starting point of the Christian life. It is God's mercy. It is His calling. It is His kindness. It is His sacrifice that has made our salvation possible. There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. There is no eternal life apart from His mercy. The basis of the Christian life is that God is calling us into a particular way to live. And that's what we're going to see here in uh, the second half of the book of Romans. In fact, um, if you've never heard this before, uh, our, our name, our church name comes from Romans 12, 1. Uh, in fact, it really comes, I grew up uh, reading the NIV and memorizing the NIV, so that's kind of like what's in my brain and my heart. And so uh, in the NIV, uh, the way it's written, it, it says to... to uh, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And as Holly and I were trying to figure out what the Lord might want this church to be called, we knew it needed to be something that captured the heartbeat of, of this church. Um, and we knew that we wanted the heartbeat of this church to be a church that was centered on the gospel. And so the creative thinking got, you know, we got that going. And one of the things we came up with was what would it look like for us to call our church uh, mercy view. In other words, that all that we do as a church is done in view of God's mercy. The, the name of this church actually comes from this verse we're looking at right now. Now, in the middle of verse 1, Paul gives us our first implication of many in the last five chapters of Romans. And he says this, in light of this mercy, you and I are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Now, there is a lot packed into that one verse, but here's what Paul is saying. He is drawing on some Jewish imagery here. See, Jews grew up offering sacrifices to God. But Paul's words here about sacrifice are very different from the way that the Jews would have process this information in two ways. First, sacrifices in the Old Testament always ended with death. Like things were killed and those things that were killed stayed dead, right? That's what happens to things when you kill them. Now, 
the, the thing that Paul is getting at as you look at this verse, he is saying something very different. When you and I offer ourselves to God, we actually become alive. And the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps wanting to get up off of the altar. That means every single day, every single moment, we have to reoffer ourselves to God. But there is a second way that this sacrifice that Paul is speaking of is different than the Old Testament sacrifice system. And it's this. Our, ours is not done to obtain salvation, but it is in response to our salvation. See, religious sacrifices in those days, whether it was Jewish believers or, or pagans, they were done to gain something from God, to get forgiveness or to get blessing or to get favor from God. And the thing about it was that it was an endless system. There were these rhythms and sequences that you had to go through. And it, it, unless there was some other way, you and I would have had to have continued to do this year after year. But we know now on the other side of the cross, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, the once and for all sacrifice for us that ended that system. And Paul has spent the last 11 chapters in the book of, uh, of Romans explaining to us what we already have because of Jesus. In other words, it's impossible to be more forgiven. It's impossible to be more blessed than we already are in him. So if you put those two ideas together, what Paul is getting at is this. On on this side of eternity, you and I are to live a dying life. We are to, in light of God's unmerited favor towards us, live for Christ while dying to ourselves. Now, what does Paul call this? Look there at the end of verse 1. Paul says that all of that is our spiritual act of worship. In other words... When you come to God truly as a living sacrifice and you say, God, there is nothing that I want more than you. There is nothing I need more than you. You fulfill me. You are what makes me significant. I cherish you more than anything. I find my joy in you more than anything. You are my all in all. When you can say that, you are making a statement about what you find worthy. You're saying that God alone is worthy of your attention, that he is worthy of your time, he's worthy of your worship. Actually, I heard one, someone once say, if you look at the word worthy and look at the word worship, they're so similar. Actually, what worship is, is worth-ship. Paul says that the way that we worship God is by laying our lives down, our desires to make much of ourselves, to make ourselves important, to make ourselves significant, and to worship God because of his great mercy to us with all that we are for all that he is. This is the first thing I want to invite you to see this evening. Giving God supreme worth is the whole of the Christian life. In other words, you and I, um, as we make much of Jesus in our lives, we, and we're saying, Jesus, you're most important, we are actually being Christians. 
That's what Christians do. Christians don't make much of themselves. They make much of God. And there are many different ways that Paul could describe what the Christian life is all about. And we see other descriptions from him and and other writers in in the New Testament. But what Paul is doing here at the beginning of Romans 12 is expressing one of the central themes of our spiritual journey with God. So like if you're a Christian, your aim should be to give ultimate value, ultimate significance, ultimate regard in your life over and above anything else to God. He is the priority. He's not a priority. He is the priority in your life. But here's the deal. You and I have indwelling sin inside of us. You and I live out what we saw in Romans 1 that Paul talked about, the the Romans 1 sort of reality. And it's this. We are constantly exchanging created things for the creator. And, And... We talk about this a lot here at Mercy View, and and we're going to do it again tonight because it's one of the most helpful grids for us to to, to understand how to identify our sin and how to repent well of our our sin, how to place our faith anew in Jesus. But what, what is it called when you put a created thing in the place where where God should be? And it's more important. It's called idolatry. And, And I want to do something with you tonight that I think will help. Uh, us identify the ways that we give our worship or our worship to things above God. A little fill in the blank. Just sort of do this mentally as we walk through this. Um, and uh, let the Lord, you know, let the Spirit um, draw you to, to himself in this moment. All right, here's the first one. The thing that I'd be most worried about losing is blank. What would you fill that blank in with? The thing that I'd be most worried about losing is blank. For some of you, it's someone in your family, probably, right? Maybe it's, it's financial resources or just whatever sort of material goods or resources you might have. Maybe it's respect from those around you, success. The thing you'd be most worried about losing is, is blank. Next, the thing I'd be most worried about never attaining is what? Maybe it's your kids turning out well, or your kids liking you, or, or maybe it's giving to your kids a childhood that you didn't have. Maybe if, it, if you're single here tonight, maybe it's companionship. By the way, the thing that you're going to notice about some of what you're putting in these blanks, they're not bad things. They're actually good things. All right, the next is... If I could change blank about myself right now, I would. What is that for you? Is it a career, a living situation, your personality, your, how you look? What is it that you would change about yourself right now? The one thing you would be most willing to sacrifice for is what? Maybe your reputation. Maybe to be in an inner circle with certain group of people that you are familiar with. Next, the one thing that has made you most bitter in life is blank. 
Maybe it's something that was taken away from you that you just can't seem to get over. Maybe it was a promotion. Maybe recognition from your dad or your mom. Bitterness always points to something that has a, a, a great influence over us. So, so the one thing that has made you bitter in life is what? Next one, I just can't forgive blank. Christian counselor author David Pallison has said, the inability to forgive is almost always connected to an idol you think someone robbed you of. I just can't forgive blank. Next, I'm willing to lie for blank. Usually when we lie, it's not necessarily because we're dishonest people, but because we're protecting an idol. What are you willing to lie for? Next, I turn for comfort with blank. Like when things go wrong, when you get criticized, when things are falling apart for you, when you're suffering in some way, where do you turn to to tell yourself that you're okay? Lastly, I seek the approval of blank. Now be honest with yourself here. We, we don't think of it this way, but a lot of our life is seeking the approval of other people. Is there somebody, some group that you would want to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, friends, a spouse, a parent. Now, what you may have found is that some of the same answers and some of the blanks, I mean, some of the answers and some of the blanks are the same. In fact, that's probably one of the ways that you can start to find your way to understanding what what your heart is captured by is that you answered some of these with the same thing. It's likely that that thing or things is an idol. And, and for some of them, again, there's likely nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but they have become something more important than God. Thus, they have become an idol. So any of those things, again, they may be good things, have, if they've become something of ultimate worth, ultimate weight in your life, they have displaced God. And Paul is saying here in Romans 12.1 that the gospel should show you that the only one worthy of your worship, the only one that you can lean your soul on and find satisfaction from is God. Some of you are so frustrated in your spiritual lives you're frustrated in your life and it's because of this right here you're not looking to god for satisfaction you're not looking to god for a sense of significance listen as as creator god he could just demand your worship if he wanted to but he became your redeemer to show you he deserved it. To show you that nothing is worthy of your worship except for him. Romance won't do it. Marriage doesn't cure it. Kids don't cure it. Money and success won't do it. Fame won't do it for you. I saw a famous singer once say, say this on social media. 100 million digital singles and I'm still insecure. Blaise Pascal once famously said 
that the human heart is a, a vacuum. This is what this means. God is always, friends, listen, always the missing piece in your life. The arms that you search for in romance are his arms. The security that you seek from wealth or from family or, or children is found in knowing him as father. The approval that you seek from your friends or your boss or public acclaim is found in hearing from him. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Well done. See, if you believe the gospel... That after you had rejected him, God was willing to be tortured and humiliated and give himself up in death for you. Don't you think he's worth the offering of the rest of your life? Doesn't it make sense to trust him with your eternal soul? Doesn't it make sense to trust him every day and every moment with your life? Paul's point is this, giving God, supreme worth, is the whole of your Christian walk. That is what the Christian journey is all about. That is what your resolution for 2023 should be. I am going to give you, God, supreme worth in my life. I'm not going to make much of me this year. I'm going to make much of you. So how do you do that? It brings us to... To verse 2. We actually just did this in practice by looking at our hearts and what we give our, our worship to. But verse 2 says this. Let me read it again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we could do a whole other sermon on, on that, sermons probably, on what it means to like not be conformed to the world. There are many there. But I want to think critically about this idea just for a moment. What Paul is saying here is that the way that we live lives of sacrificial spiritual worship is not by first and foremost following a set of rules. Now, obedience for the Christian is, is required. We're, we're called to do many, many things through the power of the gospel. But, but notice what Paul is saying. He is saying that the renewing of our mind leads to a kind of spiritual transformation that makes the things of this world grow strangely dim. Think of it in reverse, like the way that Paul wrote it here. Renew your mind. Then this renewal leads to a reshaping or a reordering of your worship so that you are more easily able to say no to the things of this world that you're tempted to worship instead. Really what Paul is saying here is this, we renew ourselves by constantly returning to the truth of the gospel that we just talked about in verse 1 and that he outlined in, verse, in chapters 1 through 11. Jesus became your redeemer to show you that he deserves your worship, to show you that nothing is worthy of your worship except for him. And by the way, we don't just do this individually. I would be doing a huge disservice to you if, if, if what you walked away with tonight is like, man, I got to get my, my personal relationship with Jesus. Like only thing is my personal relationship with Jesus is what's most important. That is important. But you know us here at Mercy View, you, you actually can't do what Paul is talking about here alone. You heard earlier Trey talk about our gospel communities and D groups. Those are two great places to to work this stuff out together in community with others around you, to kind of put yourself 
in the way of what it looks like to renew your mind. To renew your mind is another way of talking about our new vision statement here at Mercy View, which is to, to equip you for spiritual maturity. Equipping is putting yourself in the way of mind and heart renewal. Now, Paul says that as this happens, we will begin to discern something that many of us find so elusive, the will of God. Now, real quick here, I only want to set this up because for the next few weeks, Paul is, is going to outline the ways that the will of God is, is understood in various situations. But I want you to notice that the will of God here is not so much a particular choice or decision. Like, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about a way of thinking that then leads to right choices. Guys, this is huge as we think about answering the question we have many times in our life. Like, God, what is your will for X? Remember this. Many times it is your mind, it's your thinking that will lead you to right choices. I say this because many of us think of the will of God primarily as a choice. Like, God, what school should I go to? What career? Should I take this job or not? Should I date this person or not? God, what is your will? And then we develop all kinds of ways to try to figure out what he is saying. But in the scriptures, really the will of God is presented, listen, as something you become. Paul is showing us here that there is a way of thinking spiritually that then informs your choices. In fact, I would argue that 99.9% of the will of God is fulfilled by learning to do what we're talking about here tonight. Almost all of the questions that we have about the will of God are answered when we first worship God above everything else in our lives and learn to offer our lives as a sacrifice to Him. And I say this to you out of love, like I, I experience this too. Many of us have tried to discern the will of God without really pursuing those things. Let me say it this way, if you want to know what the will of God is and you leave out the worship of God above everything else and you leave out offering your life as a sacrifice for him, you won't know what the will of God is. That's actually thinking of God more like a magic eight ball, telling you what decision is the right one. What would our lives look like if, if it was driven by a desire to please God what would it look like to have a life not driven by a desire for money or praise, people to notice us, people to approve of us, a quest to have a certain kind of family situation, a certain kind of relationship? In the same way, what does it look like for you to see everything in your life, all your talents, your gifts and opportunities, as something God has given to you to offer up to him in service, just like Jesus did for you? I'll tell you what would happen. You would in most every situation know what the will of God is. The will of God is more about having the right heart posture of worship. It's more about having a, 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 a posture of surrender to God than it is figuring out some sort of mystical code. Again, many of you have tried to discern the will of God without really pursuing those two things. I have. And ironically, what you have discovered, what I have discovered, is that we've actually, this is weird, but we've turned the will of God itself into an idol. Seeking to know it more 
than to know him more. God's goal for you in 2023 is for you to become the kind of person who thinks like him, who worships him above all things, and you look at your life as a a sacrifice. Paul's point is that when you do that, then you will do the right stuff instinctively, naturally. Friends, when the gospel has transformed you into the kind of person who loves what God loves, you'll naturally do what God wants. You'll naturally discern the will of God. So press into the gospel because those who believe the gospel start to live lives that look like the gospel. That's where we'll pick up next week as Paul begins to unpack what this gospel-shaped life continues to look like. But for now, I just want to close here. Is your life a living sacrifice? Is God the thing that you worship above all else? If not, why? Giving God your supreme worth is the whole of your Christian life. So isn't it the most natural response for the one who has sacrificed his life for us to give back to him our lives as an act of worship? I believe so. As we move into a new year together, my prayer is that for us as individuals in our walk with Jesus, but as a community, we would be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Let's pray together.